I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Talkin' Golf History, the podcast that brings the past into the present, holds it up to the light, squeezes all the interesting and entertaining stuff out of it, and then tries to work out what it might all mean. For the future, I'm Rod Murray. Good to be back in your headphones after Connor's inaugural solo essay effort last week. I thought that was a really interesting idea, and both the statistics and Twitter tell me that a good deal of you enjoyed it as well. We're certainly looking forward to doing some more of those, and we'll be working hard to sharpen up some of the production values along the way, but I think we can safely say the idea was a hit, so congrats to Connor for that. Like all good entertainment, it is nowhere near as easy to pull, pull off as he made it seem. Well, that's the immediate past dealt with, but on today's show, it's events in the immediate future which have us heading down some very particular rabbit holes, because of course, the 119th US Open will be played next week at the iconic Pebble Beach, and both the tournament and the course feature rich and fascinating histories in their own right. We'll be delving into some of that today. We'll also have some listener questions, which I think really are uh, have been a real a bonus addition to the show. I've really enjoyed the couple of episodes where we've had those. They'll bring us neatly to the point where I can tell you our email is always open. That's history at talkandgolf.com, or you can use good old or reliable Twitter to get in touch. I'm at at Rod underscore Murray, and Connor is at at S historians. Well, I've added his name several times now, so I'd best be bringing him into the conversation before he has an apoplexy. Connor, good to have you aboard. Before we get started, are there any avenues for people to get in touch with yourself or other members of the Society of Golf Historians that I've missed? I know there's a Facebook page. I can never remember how you go about finding it because I'm not a Facebooker. Yeah, so on Facebook, it's it's an easy search. It's the Society of Golf Historians. It's a private page. Again, click on it, ask to join. I'll let you in. Uh, you can also reach me at my newly established email account, which is the Society of Golf Historians at gmail.com. And I've been getting probably 20 emails a day, oh, fabulous. which are great. Yeah. You know, a lot of compliments on the podcast. Excellent. I've had everything from people contacting to help me uh, or help them colorize a black and white photo mm-hmm. to asking about their club history to asking if I'd be interested in joining them on their podcast or their radio show or their TV show or even uh, come and buy and give a speech to their club. Oh, wow. So it's been a great avenue to discuss history with people. And isn't it lovely? I I know we've said this before. This was kind of the point of the whole thing for you, wasn't it? Way back when, when you launched the Twitter account, then we had you on the I Seek Golf podcast and that went really well. This was kind of the point, wasn't it? To gather up all the people who are interested in history and make sure that it all gets shared and that people take an interest in it. It's such, an, such a fascinating part of the game. So congrats on the fact that that's working out. I'm really pleased to hear it for you. You know, Rod, it is, it's a pleasure to talk with people other than the voices in my head. So it's been a great <laughs> avenue for people to engage me versus me engage myself. Yeah, so. A couple of things just quickly. Can I say publicly? I know I've chatted to you probably 
publicly congratulations on your narrative essay on uh, Johnny McDermott, the, the champion who lost his mind. I thought it was fa- fascinating and fantastic. I know we had some good feedback, but good on you for coming up with the idea and then doing it because it's a more daunting prospect than people realise, isn't it? If you're, if you're at all unsure <laughs> about that, folks, grab yourself a microphone, sit down in front of about 15 pages of typed out text and see how far you get before you think, I'm not up for this. This is too hard. So good on you for doing yeah. it. That was... Uh, I'll, I'll well give done. people a little bit of a, a snapshot into what that was like. So writing it came easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, you know, in writing it, I think you and I were going back and forth. This is over a month ago. It was going really easy. And I was like, oh, this, I think this is going to be really good. And This will be I out tomorrow. Really good things to say. <laughs> yeah, this is not going to be a problem. And Rod's like, great. You know, record it. Let's see how it goes. And I remember sitting down. And, of course, like an idiot, I think I decided to start recording at like 10 p.m. at night. Yeah. Which, if you're ever doing anything in a narrative form for 40 straight minutes, don't start in the middle of the night. That's my first bit of advice. Uh, the other bit of advice, too, is, you, as Rod told me, you really have to record it all in one set. Because if you do it the next day, for whatever reason, the, the mic won't work the same or your voice won't sound the same, and you can tell. <laughs> so I had to just power through it. And I thought, oh, this isn't any big deal. I'll just, I just read. I can read. And I think fortunately for the world, probably not fortunate for the world, but definitely fortunate for me, I, let's see, it was a 40-minute podcast, and I joke that it took 400 minutes to record, which it might not be far from that, it seems, but I, oh, gosh, there were moments, I'll just give you a little blip where I would, I would try to say the like, you know, and you're saying it in any ever other conversation like you normally would. And I got to the and I'd say, duh. I mean, it was something dumb like that. And it was after you've just gone 20 minutes straight or 15 minutes straight of dialogue with no mistakes. And I would just get in this fit of anger with myself. Like, I, I literally would say, mouth, why can't you work? I mean, I was just like nonsensical, screaming at my mouth for why I could not kick out that word. Yeah, so the next one will, I'm hoping, knock on wood. Uh, we'll have out for the Open Championship. It's a fascinating topic that very few, if anybody, ever talks about. I've never heard anybody talk about it in any amount of great time. It's that much of a lost subject, and it is brilliant. Fantastic. But um, I am a little bit afraid of the recording process. Uh, it'll, it'll be better next <laughs> oh, time. It, isn't it, before we move on, yeah. people should know that I have a brilliant British accent. Yeah, you really don't. Use on you. <laughs> you really don't. So for you folks at home, for you folks at home, <laughs> when I read the uh, the quote from uh, the American golfer on uh, the critic who was basically uh, criticizing United States golf uh, versus the United Kingdom, I used the first time through a British accent. You know, to just yeah, I thought, oh, you know, we we'll use creative license, and I'll go with a British accent. And Rod is like. Buddy, that is the worst thing I've ever heard. For the, That's the worst thing I've ever heard. You cannot do that. There's the, just no way. For the second podcast in a week, I'm going to quote Seinfeld. And as Kramer said to um, to Elaine with the little kicks, that ain't dancing, Sally. <laughs> that was no, no British was, accent. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> not at all. It was a good attempt. It I was. thought. I mean, I thought I felt like, you know, uh, an Oscar winning actor, you know, delivering some lines. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it was. I think it was that good. I think maybe the mic didn't capture how good it was. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, that, that old distortion thing must have yeah, kicked in just for that little it's, bit. You know, I, I looked at it. This mic was made in the United States. Did you just walk away from the microphone? Yeah. No, I just held it upside down. 
So why are you uh, holding? I was it? looking to make sure. Well, I'm, I'm just telling you. I had to oh. look. It's made in the United States, so I don't think it does British accents. Well. Oh, I see what you're saying. Right, okay. That's, yeah. It's a bit like golf, isn't it, Connor? People who've never played golf, how hard can it be? The ball just sits there. People who've never so, done a voiceover, how hard could it be? You just read the words off the page. <laughs> I was that idiot, too. Yeah, and then you find out how <laughs> yeah, hard was me. It, it can be. Yeah, indeed. Well, I think you did a fantastic yeah, I was like, job. I can, I can talk. And I can read. You'll get so better. I just need to do both those yeah. things. Yeah. The other thing that will happen, and I think we discussed this too, is, and it's a very different skill set, is you'll learn to write for speech, which is completely different to writing. So your initial instinct yeah. is to sit down and write the Johnny McDermott story as you would submit it for a magazine. But when you read that, it doesn't sound natural or right. You need to write differently. There's a different cadence to written word for speech. So you'll get all those things, and uh, I'll get better at putting the music underneath and all that sort of stuff. And they will be better, but I thought it was a terrific first effort, so congrats on that. Thank you. And for you in in podcast land, if you listen to that again, that is definitely a criticism from Rod about the podcast. What do you mean? (laughs) You said you'll get better at, meaning that it was not good enough for air. It's not as good as you can be. Not as good as you can be. That's all I was saying. I think there's definitely some talent there. Second thing I wanted to just ask you about, you said somebody had got in touch with you about colorizing their black and white photos. Do those people know that you just use crayons for that? I I hope they're not going to send you the originals, just photocopies, I hope. They're letting me destroy originals (laughs) left and right. It's pretty amazing. Actually, it was fun. It's a fun exercise. Uh, I think it's Days Sports kind of kicked off this fast. Yeah, they've done a Twitter. They're fantastic, Uh, aren't they? I've seen a bunch of them. Yeah, and then... He reached out to me, and I reached out to him, and I asked him, I said, listen, would you mind colorizing some images for me and my stories that I post on Twitter? And he was like, no need, mate. You know, here's how you do it. And he gave me the information. I've been kind of tweaking the process. So you've actually been doing it yourself. A couple different formats. You really have. Wow. Well, thank you for following my Twitter feed, Rod. I really appreciate that. Uh, I, to be honest, I really haven't had the time these last couple of days. I it's been it. pretty hectic. So Go check it out. Yeah, I've got some yeah, well, good okay, ones. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I just I did a... Um, a thread today on the uh, first U.S. Open U.S. Amateur. I did one yesterday on uh, the first unofficial U.S. Open U.S. Amateur, which we'll talk about a little bit today, and I colorized some uh, images. And then I did a whole piece on, uh, what was it, Women's Golf Day, I, I saw some of the- where I colorized oh. some of those old photographs. That, that was my handiwork. So I've been in the space where I've seen your original tweets but haven't really had time to go into the threads and really read what they've been about. So that's the space I've been in. I've been sort of skimming has been, uh, has been me for the last couple of days. Let's move on. I said we've got some listener questions and there's some interesting ones in there. But before we come to yeah. those, I think they're a fantastic addition, to be honest with you, to the podcast. I've really enjoyed Great. the listener questions more than I thought I would, which is interesting, the couple that we've done. Uh, but we should really get a bit of a sketch of the history of the U.S. Open, the USGA. It's all tied together. Of course, Pebble Beach has been an iconic venue for the U.S. Open uh, on more than one occasion. Obviously, we'll be back there this week. So I'm going to, because I've been in skim mode, it's been up to you to decide what it is that we're going to talk about it since you're doing the talking. Give us a thumbnail sketch of a couple of the, the topics you want to touch on today before we let the listeners yeah. take over. Well, I think before we let the listeners take over, um, I think we'll just talk about the very early days of the USGA and the US Open, and a mm-hmm. little bit into the US Amateur, because mm-hmm. uh, we are on the 119th US Open, but you could argue we might be on the 120th mm-hmm. US Open. So I'll get into those little details. Uh, we'll jump into, say, the first five um, US Opens, what things changed, how did we uh, correct the format of our national championship, uh, or I should say the national championship of the United States. Sorry, folks, all over the world. 
and uh, kind of get into the weird and crazy way that this championship formed because it's the USJ's formation and the formation of the U.S. Open and U.S. Amateur are one of the great, you know, stories that nobody talks about because mm-hmm. it's such just wacky, wild, and, you know, just crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, I love it. That's it, what I love about it. So the All two early opens, history is great. Yeah. yeah. So, so to me, the two Opens, the U.S. Open and the Open Championship, they hold a special place because they're open, genuinely open tournaments. The others have sort of restrictions, don't they? But the fact that they're open tournaments really do make them special, I think, both the U.S. Open and the Open Championship. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. They are uh, my two favorite majors mm. out of the four. Oh, okay. Well, that's always yeah, an interesting the- question, isn't it? We'll get into that one day. Favorite majors. Because yeah. there's some interesting things happening with that. I think the Masters has surpassed the U.S. Open in the, in the minds of a lot of people, which, which speaks directly to the genius of the marketing department at Augusta National Golf Club, I would suggest they are, to you. They are brilliant at that. Yep. They are brilliant at that. If you, you can take a, an invitation of less than 100 players, 40 of whom can't win, and have people genuinely believe that it's a more important tournament than the U.S. Open, that's world-class marketing. No question about it. I um, mean, when you consider that the Masters has only been a major for like 55 years, it's really remarkable. Oh, did you just open that can? <laughs> I, I always come back to it. It's just Goodness too easy. It's too easy. I, I just, every time. Sorry. That's okay. Enough of that. All right. So take us all the way back, Connor. As you say, the, the, the U.S. Open and the, the birth of the USGA are intrinsically linked. But, of course, some things happened before those two things happened, didn't they, which led to those two things happening. So give us the, the outline of how we come to, came to have both a USGA and a U.S. Open. Yeah. this And they're great stories. So – this is the early days of golf in the United States. So uh, basically, our for- formal first, um, our first formal country club in the United States, uh, St. Andrews Golf Club in uh, New York, was founded in 1888, and we're about five years after that. So now, St. Andrews basically sets the tone for go- early golf in the United States. They are literally, you know, you've heard them, the apple tree gang. Mm-hmm. They spread the game all across the Northeast. And by 1890 to 1895, there are literally golf courses sprawling up all over the place, all across the United States. And of those, we have professional golfers coming over from the United Kingdom to be professionals here in the United States. So essentially what happened is in 1893 and early 1894, it was determined that there should be a championship, much like the British Amateur and the Open Championship across the Atlantic. This is the opportunity for the United States to establish itself as a uh, leader in the game of golf. So the very first ever U.S. Amateur was actually held at Newport, which is oddly enough where they held it a year later uh, for the first official U.S. Amateur, was held in 1894. It wasn't the United States Amateur. it It was basically the United States National Amateur. And it brought in many of the top amateur golfers across the United States to compete. Now, what's interesting to note is, and I'll get into this a little bit as we get into 1895, but amateur golf was way more important than professional golf back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say it was more important probably all the way up until, well, you can make an argument for Walter Hagen, but definitely in the early 1900s when you had Willie Anderson winning four uh, U.S. Opens. But even then, he was definitely in the shadow of, uh, Walter Travis, and uh, you know, then you know, of course, Bobby Jones and those folks that came after uh, Chick Evans, etc. So, this preeminent amateur uh, competition is held in Newport Country Club, 
and pitting off all these amateurs against each other in match play. And it comes down to the finals of two people. Now, one of them is Charles Blair McDonald. Now, Charles Blair McDonald was six foot tall, 200 pounds. Uh, he was, in our world, what we'd call a modern day uh, influencer, right? He uh, designed um, Chicago Golf Club in mm -hmm. 1892, is reportedly the first 18-hole uh, golf course in the United States. He was a big deal. Um, so in the finals, heavily, heavily favored Charles Blair McDonald against William Lawrence, who pretty much was, I don't know, an afterthought. Uh, even Charles Blair McDonald thought, this thing's in the bag, uh -huh. uh, as he was known to say. So the front part of their competition, the first 18 holes of, this, of, the, of the competition, he is breezing by uh, William Lawrence. Now, some of this... I'm going to tell you right now, I have not read about this in years, so I may flip-flop some stories. But the stories I've heard are pretty darn good. Uh, I won't say factual, because back then it's hard to put facts on things. And Charles Blair McDonald would never have mentioned this in his preeminent book. Uh, so as the story goes, uh, Charles Blair McDonald is basically blowing out William Lawrence. And over a break in the action, they sit down for... I mean, pretty nice food. I believe he was having duck and wine. Oh, nice. And what I think he could be called an over-celebration or a, uh, a, a early victory uh, <laughs> celebration. Didn't just he, write the victory speech, had the victory meal. Uh, he imbibed <laughs> a little bit in a little too much wine. That's the story as it goes. And uh, played William Lawrence in the, uh, the final piece to the U.S. Amateur and lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he lost basically blowing up every bit amount of lead that you can think of. If you think of Greg Norman uh, blowing up against oh, Nick Faldo, that's ouch. probably on the same level. Ouch. I know. Sorry I went oh. there. That, is that a little too close oh. for you? Ouch. Anyway. So yes. upon the conclusion, our first, quote, unquote, U.S. amateur champion, uh, Charles Blair McDonald gets into a big stink. Now, most people who have studied Charles Blair McDonald would say that he had a little bit of an ego on him and he wasn't afraid to throw it around. Now, he's six foot tall when everybody else is five foot seven. So he's a giant in the game, like literally a giant mm -hmm. in the game, not a, just a giant by influencing standpoint, but he's a giant in the game. And he basically complains, like, listen, how is this the United States amateur? We don't even have a ruling body. How can we declare this the U.S. amateur? So, as crazy as this sounds, there essentially was a do-over in 1894. So you have a first U.S. amateur, and then you have your second first U.S. amateur in 1894 um, at now St. Andrews Golf Club. So just, now, just before we go forward, uh, yeah. leaving aside the timing of his complaint, i.e. after he's lost, does he have a valid yeah. point? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, he probably does. I mean, he probably does. Well, I, mean, I, I imagine the there, were, there were probably others you, in the field said the same thing, you would yeah, imagine. If you go into a competition and it is written about all across the United States in new, newspapers that this is the United States amateur, I think you know what you're getting into mm, going in. Possibly, yeah. I mean, Charles Blair McDonald likely doesn't you know, take a train from Chicago all the way to New York to play in something that Maybe doesn't have meaning to it. Mm, okay. No, that's pick my up. thought. So, yep, fair enough. So anyway, I... If that's not the case, then I would argue the second story is. So in 1894, again, about a month, maybe two months later, they hold the second ever or the second first ever 
uh, U.S. Amateur at St. Andrews Golf Club. And in good turn, they decide to hold, uh, I believe it was called the American Professional Championship, uh, which was essentially their U.S. Open. It was called the United States National Open also. So you have now, you have the foundation of a U.S. Amateur Mm -hmm. and the U.S. Open, prior to the USJ, mind you. So again, we'll get right back into McDonald, and then I'll jump into the U.S. Open competition. So this time, same thing. McDonald plows through the field. I mean, he's just blowing everybody out. He's feeling good about his game, and he runs into the finals against L.B. Stoddard. Now, you can do a lot of research on Stoddard, and it is not easy to find (laughs) stuff on Stoddard. That's how, I I don't want to say unimportant, but, you know, Uh he's not well-known. He's the underdog. He's well-known for. (laughs) What he is well-known for is he was a member of St. Andrew's Golf Club. Uh So he had the course knowledge. So now, in the finals again, for the, well, I can't even say second straight year, the second straight U.S. Amateur of 1894, Stoddard, just like Lawrence, pulls the massive upset on Charles Blair McDonald, and it goes back to, I think it was the second to last hole, as I understand it, mind you, I have not looked at this information for years, is that McDonald's ball came, uh, came to rest upon a wall. Now, mind you, this is not St. Andrew's Golf Club that uh, is there today. This is, if you go to the Twitter feed, you can actually see the map uh, that I put up of the original St. Andrews Golf Club that had walls running through the property. And McDonald's ball came to rest against the wall, and as the story goes, he lifted it and moved it and essentially was caught, uh, hate to use that word, um, and received a penalty, lost the hole, Mm. and ended up losing the match. So um, I'll go in the U.S. Open after this because it, it really gets to the story. So again, Charles Blair McDonald loses it. Six foot one, two hundred pound Charles Blair McDonald loses it again and goes off against the committee that threw the thing and basically says again, "Who are you to you know decide that this is the United States Amateur Championship? You know, who are you to say this is our national championship? Where's the authority? And where's the governing who has the body? Authority? Yeah, who has the? I mean. Good luck to him. Right? Yeah, he, he goes there. That is a valid yeah. point in, uh, for later on. But yeah, as I said, the circumstances oh, are questionable. But that's well, a, and it's really, it's really due to that complaint mm-hmm. that we have the <clears throat> USJ today. If mm-hmm. we don't have Charles Blair McDonald complaining, we don't have the USJ. Because essentially, what happened was um, in December of that very same year, um, five clubs came together to form the USGA, mm-hmm. uh, the United States Golf Association, which. I'm going to screw this up. It was not called the USGA initially. It was the American Amateur Association, I believe. Mm-hmm. I put it on Twitter, so double-check me on that. Uh, but it was founded in December of 1894, and uh, that's the USGA we have today. So rewind a little bit to the U.S. Open, because I, I think, to me, this is kind of a tragic story. There's two parts of the tragedy here. Um, the U.S. Open, the first U.S. Open, the first American professional golf championship. Again, it's called the championship. It's the United States. Sounds like a major. Uh, is won by Willie Dunn, who is the professional at uh, Shinnecock. Now, there wasn't a large field. I think there might have been six players, and he won it. But he was by far the best player in the United States. And for, I don't know, the next 35, 40 years, I can show you publications if you go to the Twitter feed. You can actually see in golfing journals for the next 30 to 35 years, it lists in 1894 
Willie Dunn as the first U.S. Open champion. 35 years after. That's 34 years well, after. That's a fair old precedent, isn't it? You, in legal terms, you'd accept that, wouldn't you, as a precedent? I you'd mean, say that, that's law. Right. Hmm. And that is, and that is across the board. I mean, um, I got into this, I believe, with Bill Williams about whether it was the U.S. Open, and and that really, thank God for Bill, because I wouldn't have dug that deep, because I had seen it in maybe one article, and one article means nothing, but then I started finding twenty articles and thirty articles, and I mean, like, all the way up until I think nineteen, I think I have one from nineteen twenty-five that I posted uh, from Oakmont that had, or maybe it was nineteen twenty-seven, no, twenty-five U.S. Amateur at Oakmont which listed um, uh, Willie Dunn as the first uh, U.S. Open champion. Right. So there okay. you go. I mean, it was just a little bit of that. So yeah. because of that, uh, there are two tragedies, in my opinion. But the next year, of course, we have the 1895 U.S. Amateur, which is sanctioned by the USGA. There's zero doubt about it. Um, Charles Blair McDonald beats Charles Sands <laughs> to become the first third-ever or first, yeah, the way how you said first, third, third time, first ever third time US winner. amateur champion. Yep. And a little interesting note about Charles Sands. I'm sure he felt heartbroken about it. Um, but five years later, Charles Sands would win the first ever gold medal in golf at the Olympic Games oh. in Paris. Oh, so wow. he got a little bit of his history, yeah. too. And he actually hailed from the St. Andrews Golf Club. Oh, fantastic. So a little bit of that. Nice little neat so, bow on top of it all. The downside of this story, right, is... The U.S. Open was held directly after uh, the U.S. Amateur. And, again, it was underplayed from coverage standpoint. But the first United States Open at, um, at Newport Country Club, sanctioned by the USGA, Horace Rollins, who is, uh, oddly enough, a, he was the professional for Newport. So, again, he knew the course well, much like Stoddard did. Um, he beat Willie Dunn and Willie Campbell. He was a massive upset. Uh, the papers back then talk about the, the amount of gambling money lost. Willie Campbell was out of the country club of, uh, uh, that's located in Brookline, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, apparently, the Boston sports fans lost the most money. They were the most rambunctious about their man winning the U.S. Open, and they lost heavy. And then Rollins wins it and becomes what is now our first ever U.S. Open champion sanctioned by the USJ or the second U.S. Open champion, the second first U.S. Open champion, right. depending on how you want to look at it. It so tells the you there's tur- lies two parts. Yeah, it yeah. tells you they're turbulent times, though, don't they, Colin? That that there's this push yeah, that there's, mean, there's enough golfers and enough good golfers that they want some sort of an organization, they want a ruling body. The game's got to a point where it needs to be more organized. It tells you other things about the history and that point in history, doesn't it? Aside from just the absolutely the sp- does. Yeah, you know the the sad thing that comes from this story, at least from from my viewing is two things never happen again. Uh, Willie Dunn never wins a major. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came in second, of course, to uh, Horace Rollins. He never wins his first U.S. Open. And you can't underestimate the impact of Willie Dunn on early golf in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I think some people know he expanded Shinnecock to 18 holes mm-hmm. in 1895 for the 1896 um, uh, U.S. Open. But as importantly, he paid a pivotal role in Charles Blair McDonald becoming a golf course architect and how that came to be in 1894. And I put this on Twitter some time ago. Uh, Charles Blair McDonald was talking to Willie Dunn in Chicago when they were about ready to move from uh, the Downers Grove course to the one in Wheaton. 
and he tried to get Willie Dunn to become the first professional at Chicago Golf Club. This is, you know, James Fallis was the first. But uh, he offered it first to Willie Dunn, and as part of that offer, he offered Willie Dunn the opportunity to design uh, the course at Wheaton. Mm. So if you think about that, I mean, if you look at really look at it, Charles Blair McDonald's design springboard starts at Chicago Golf Club, mm. uh, which held um, multiple U.S. Opens and U.S. Amateurs um, prior to you know the nineteen uh, tenths, yeah. and right. so that springboard you know, spring, springboards McDonald into golf course architecture, which gets us the National Golf Links, mm. Poppy, Piping Rock, Lido Club, which we did a story about, and all those that followed, which then, of course, uh, promoted Seth Rayner to an architect. So if Willie Dunn says yes to that, uh, we don't have probably have Charles Blair McDonald or Seth Rayner designing golf courses all over wow. the United States and changing the way yeah. the art form of golf course architecture is in the United States. Yeah. These are amazing little moments in time, aren't they, which set the tone for so much are. that follows. Yeah. And you know what? At, 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 every, at every juncture, the game's been it could have gone away that would have made it less popular and perhaps even die out. Uh, and, it, and at all of those turns, of, somehow we've come up with the right the right answer. Yeah, it's like a it's a series of dominoes that can go in any yeah. direction. And yeah. if one thing falls a different way, yeah. our game changes forever. Yeah, forever. Um, we're probably we might still be, have more Victorian designed bunkers in the United States, as oddly as that sounds. Uh, I'd like to think we would have evolved, but we mm. definitely wouldn't have evolved this fast uh, without you know uh, National Golf Links of America. Yeah. And of course, the, so sorry, yeah. all of this stuff leads to the game growing to what we see today, where it's actually now at a size that those really critical crossroads, for the most part, I think we've got one with the distance the ball goes. We won't get into that. that that's, that's the next big crossroads for the game. But for the most part, the game's now big enough to sustain mistakes, isn't it? We, we don't have those crossroads yeah, like we did in the early days. So, You know, and you know, before I jump into the, the first, what, five U.S. Opens, and, the, and I'm just going to touch on it. It's not going to be a long um, story, but just I, I think it's fascinating how we evolved in those first five years of the U.S. Open. I'll just touch on that a little bit. But um, one thing, I mean, getting back, back to modern days, I think it's very in style to bash, uh, bash on the USGA mm-hmm. and their course setup. True. Um, I think it's the easy thing to do. Um, yeah. I, I, in, fairness, that, like to, in fairness, they have the armed the enemy yeah, pretty well, haven't they? Let's be fair. They have. I mean, they have. But at the same time, I, I, my argument back would be they've also produced great sure. champions. Yep through all those mistakes. Yep. Agree. So, you know, I, I guess my point is, if the course is set up unfair, as long as it's set up unfair for everybody, mm-hmm. it's an even competition. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a simple. Now, if Shinnecock runs away in the afternoon and people can't, you know, shoot a decent score like they did in the morning round, there's definitely an issue there, and, I, and I'd put them to task. Did they screw up the ruling in 2016 on Dustin Johnson? I believe they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but luckily for us, Dustin Johnson pushed his way through and still won the tournament. Mm. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's too easy to bash on the organization itself. Uh, it's very popular to do so, and maybe I'm unpopular for saying this, but uh. um, I guess I'm always one to see get a restart. Let's see what how the Pebble Beach goes. And by the way, we can get into the eighth and ninth hole later. But yeah. uh, <laughs> we're not going to have time. We've got listener questions <laughs> yeah, to get to as well. Soon. I don't know. I'll just say it, being the USGA is very much like being Connor trying to do that that narrative it's a whole lot harder than it looks from the outside the easiest thing in the world is to pick everything that the usga has done wrong 
at every step of the way. But that just shows such a lack of understanding of the reality of being the USGA and what's involved in that. You're guaranteed that some things are going to go wrong. Yeah, well, if if they set it up like some people have recommended, uh, (coughs) and we we reintroduce width to the game, I mean, those same people are going to be very upset when this winning score for the U.S. Open is 24 under par. So there's a balancing point, and they're they're on a – so that's a, a very tough position. Right. So, but two, two things need to happen for width to be an effective strategy in golf, yeah. and that is for the distance to be controlled. Sure. So we're at a point where the distance has got to strategically design courses like Royal Melbourne, which for me plays strategically because I hit it about the distance that you kind of need to, in fact, probably a little bit too short, to really be able to make best uh, use of angles and those sorts of things. But Tiger Woods just hits it down into wedge zone. He just hit a series of eight irons at Augusta National. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he hits. So it's a fantastic angles golf course for somebody who hits it 40 yards shorter. But And so that's the problem. That's why you can't just go back to wide and not change anything else. You've either got to, go, you've either got to add length and width or you've got to reduce distance uh, and add width. Yeah, that 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 that'd be my take on that. <clears throat> and people forget that the two work in concert. Distance is critical to the game, absolutely critical. But it's only one of two elements, so... Anyway, <clears throat> not to go down a rabbit hole. All right. Well, let's before we jump into the listener questions, I thought I'd just go through what I like to think of. I, what I like in history is I really enjoy seeing the evolution of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really get awe, really enjoy following how something starts and how it evolves into what it's to come mm-hmm. or how it changes throughout the years. Mm-hmm. And, and the U.S. Open is no different than that. Um, in the U.S. Open... The first one, the first official one, if you will, 1895 at Newport Country Club. Uh, now, this is Newport Country Club. 1895 does not resemble the golf course that we have here today. Mm. It's a nine-hole course with what I mentioned before, a Victorian style of bunkers, mm-hmm. which were essentially bunkers where the sand was level with the, uh, the plane surface. Okay. And then mounding was built up three to four feet in front of those bunkers so it'd be essentially an obstacle to go over right. versus getting out of a bunker does that make sense yeah right? absolutely yep same effect yeah, but it's so, that you start at ground level and go over as opposed to digging down yes, to get the need yes, to go over. basically yeah. mounding versus a hole in the uh, ground yep. that's the best way you can put it so in 1895 you have a nine hole newport and the championship for the united states uh open and for the open was 36 holes which Total. For the first three years of the Open, 36-hole mm-hmm. championships, okay. which mirrored, by the way, uh, the 36-hole championships of the Open championship until 1892. Oh. Over two days so, or, or all played on one day? It was all in one day. Okay, All right. in one day. So 36 holes, one day, go. Um, in 1896, we get the first ever 18-hole uh, golf course to hold it, which was Shinnecock Hills. Mm-hmm. That was uh, Willie Dunn's 18-hole golf course, which, by the way, not a single hole – of that original 18-hole golf course sits – I'm sorry, it does sit. One sits on a hole, but it does not consist of the hole. So it was running perpendicular with, I believe, 18. Right. So, so what, what we see today totally is different totally different. Right. Yeah, and 60% of the course doesn't even sit on the site boundary of the current Shinnecock Hill. <clears throat> it goes over the train tracks twice. Wow. So the train tracks are south of the property. So I, I love that. You know, I did a little thing on, on lost golf courses that was specific to the 1896 Shinnecock Hills golf course. In 1897, we go back-to-back 18-hole golf courses for a 36-hole championship. And then in 1898, we get one change. 
We we turn to a 72-hole championship, 1898. It's played at Myopia, which is a nine-hole course. So you could say that Myopia is the first U.S. Open course to have eight rounds of golf. Because mm-hmm. you know, your round would be yeah, nine yeah. holes. It's so it's a little bit trivia for you. Do we know why we went to 72, Connor? Sorry, is there anything in the literature of the time? Was there a push for it? Had it been spoken about? Were there letters to the editor? Do we see that kind of thing happen? Or does it just suddenly one year, it's 72 holes? There's not a definitive, but my my educated guess would say that our relationship between 1895 to 1898 with the RNA was fairly strong. In 1892, they went to a 72-hole event at uh, the Open Championship. Mm -hmm. And I believe that uh, essentially Big Brother, which would be the RNA, um, they took the example and went to 72 holes. I'd have to fact check that. Yep. But that's okay. there may be something in the literature, but that's that has always been my takeaway of moving <clears> to <throat> 72 holes. Okay. Oh, sorry, finally, I interrupted you there. Yeah, go ahead. No, I did. I interrupted you there. I didn't mean to. Sorry. Continue. Oh, no, no worries. Um, then finally, the last one I was going to just bring up was the last nine-hole co- golf course ever to hold the U.S. Open, which was Baltimore Country Club. Uh, also a 72-hole event. And if you're ever in Baltimore, it's not on the actual course. If I'm not mistaken, and I may be because I haven't been to this site, I'd love to go, by the way, and explore it. I believe the original nine-hole course sat across the street from the current Baltimore Country Club. Could be wrong on that. Okay. So someone feel free to correct me on Twitter. Indeed. Uh, what sort of field sizes do we know, Connor? Any, any indication? Is there a set field size? or I would imagine that you're no, not going initially, to be inundated, are you? Yeah. Or are you? No, initially the field the field sizes were pretty small yeah. in the early goings of the U.S. Open. Um, they were, I'm trying to think. I want to say that in 1895 you probably had, don't quote me on this, but I'm going to guess 12 players. Okay. Um, I think we had, yeah, I think we had 10 to 12 players. That's my guess. Okay. Oh, let me look it up real quick. I have my notes. Yep, I had 10 players. Wow. Okay. Uh, let's fast forward to 1899. Um, See if I can find anything in my notes here. I don't see it. My guess is we would have had 20-some players by then. That'd be a good guess of how it grew. And then within the decade, you were at 40 to 60 players. So it was a a rapid rise. But that also, it correlates with the number of clubs that were being established at that time. So it's kind of a, a rise in prominence from 1895 where you still don't have a lot of clubs from, you know, 1895 and before. And every year you see more and more pros because that's the growth of the game of golf in the United States. Okay. Are we ready for listener questions? Because there's one that ties directly to this, I think, which is interesting. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. That sounds good. Uh, well, I'm not gonna go, we went through these amongst ourselves, obviously, prior to. I'm not going to go through them in that order because I think this one pertains exactly to what we were just talking about. And it's from one bearded golfer, regular listener, good guy, Dave, I think. Dave, he's from Kentucky. I know that. <clears throat> Pardon me. So he wants to know, there's currently a convoluted mess of exemptions and a strict handicap index limit for hopeful qualifiers for the US Open. What were some of the early restrictions placed on eligibility? When did local and regional qualifiers arrive? And when and from where did the GHIN system make its appearance? Let's take the first one of that first. I kind of asked you, I guess. Do we know what what were the restrictions? If you wanted to play the US Open, could you just bowl up and enter? Because there wouldn't have been a handicap system, would there? No. In the very early days, um, <clears throat> I believe it was a recommendation from the clubs. So okay. if you look at it, the head pros of clubs were playing in all the U.S. Opens. Right. As that moved on, they had a uh, period where everyone had to qualify. Right. I don't have the dates on that uh-huh. for one bearded golfer, unfortunately. Um, but there was a qualification process, and the regional qualifying 
came about much later down the road okay. uh, as the U.S. Open grew. And so and I guess but, this... Oh, by the way, I, I would refer to, much like the Open Championship, um, qualifying for the Open Championship, even in the 20s, was usually like a week before the Open. Yeah, that's right. Not much different. Local to the, to the course. So if you qualified, you didn't have to come back three months later and spend all Tragic. that again. Given there was no tragic if you're taking a train, right? Tragic to go all the way there yeah. <laughs> and try to qualify to lose, and then have to take a train all the way home. Well, it's funny. Tough. This does still happen. So the, this is a complete side note. I do another podcast for a magazine down here, Golf Australia magazine. We just started recently. Our first guest was a lady called Sue Worcester, fifty-six years old, plays off plus three. Fascinating story. Wonderful woman. Didn't take the game seriously until her forties. So if you want some inspiration, there you go. When she turned fifty, she wanted to play in the U.S. Senior Women's Amateur. And she looked into it, and the qualifying was three months before the tournament. So she'd actually booked her ticket to fly from Australia wow. to America to tee up in the qualifying. And if she played well, she would then have the opportunity to spend several thousand more dollars coming back three months later to play in the event. Wow. Luckily, her husband stumbled across some of the eligibility criteria, and I think she was in the top 500 in the amateur world rankings. And because of that, she got a free pass straight into the event, so she didn't have to do it. She got to cancel that ticket and got her nice. money back. But that was nice. that was six years ago. That's madness, yeah, isn't it? Congratulations! Yeah. No, she's, right? Congratulations! Go and have a listen to that podcast, Connor. Honestly, she's the I most yeah. fascinating and fantastic, uh, fantastic person. I'll, I'll put the I'll put a note about it there in the in the show notes if anybody wants to have a listen. But an extraordinary story of taking up the game late and just being unbelievably good at it. Uh, given that there wouldn't have been a handicap system at the time, as you say, there would have been qualifying. Would it be safe to say that there weren't so many potential players that you didn't need to restrict the qualifying field as we do these days with a handicap system? Do we know how that might have worked? I know these are small details, probably not written about, but it's fascinating to consider how that... Because the hardest thing in golf, of course, in this day and age, especially if you're a pro, is just finding somewhere to play. Because it's so hard to get onto a tour. The restrictions well, to get to places are so difficult. Hmm, what was it like yeah, back then, I wonder? Point because we didn't have a professional tour back then. No. So that's, there's another piece. To, you know, not till <clears> 1916, you don't have the PGA Tour. So really, yeah, the qualification process, in my mind, was you had to be a head professional of a golf club to be you know, on the professional side of that. Yep. Um, but again, I don't know when the qualification process started. If I were to venture a guess, it would have been... The early 15s, early or late, tw- or I'm sorry, late 15, late teens, early, early 20s, 20s yeah. where the qualification process stepped outside of just being a head pro. Right. We might actually have some homework at this because I'd be interested to know as well. Yeah, when when did the local and regional qualifiers arrive? I think there'd be a whole fascinating thing going on there. Um, anyway, so there's that. And just that last part of the question, I think you did find the answer to this. When and from where did the GHIN system make its appearance? That's the American handicap system, isn't it? The yeah, the American handicap system was adopted in 1981 okay. for uh, so, equity in golf play. Fairly recent. So then, uh, you know, from that we have you know the qualifying process now. What do you? I can't. I don't even know it off the top of my head. Do you have to be a a two handicap or two, better? Two point one. I think. Two, well, I think it depends. I think it also depends on the entries. How many entries they get. Yeah, so the more entries, yeah. the lower that handicap limit comes down because it's got to be. They've only got a certain amount of things, and of course. Only 1981 for the have, U.S. I don't have to know that because that's not history, folks. No, that's right. <laughs> but it's interesting. 1981 for the U.S. GHIN system. By this time in two yeah. years, we should have a world handicap system. Think about that. And you know what? When I looked it up, I didn't know uh, when that system, when the system started. Mm. 
And to be quite frank, I guess I was a little shocked when I saw it was only 1980. I would have thought earlier too. You'd have thought in the 60s and yeah. the 50s. So there's a whole, yeah. there's some other homework. You're going to dig up some stuff researching that, I think, that's going to be really interesting about how, how competitions yeah, worked and, and all those sorts of things. <clears throat> Pardon me. And, and from that, and from <clears throat> that, of course, um, we can blame 1981 for every sandbagger who's beat me in a club. <laughs> don't, don't make me name you John Ostrap. I'll do it. Fair enough. Question two. This is from Will at WCRPING. So that's, uh, I don't know what all that stands for, Will, but at WCRPING. Uh, Will wants to know, curious about the transition from 36 holes of golf on the final day to the format we see today. And then the impossible questions, and I think you've really nailed it there, Will, the impossible questions. Would that work today or would it be better than what we see today? So first, when, when did we go from a 36-hole final day on a Saturday to a four-day 72-hole tournament format. Yeah. Um, the first ever uh, four rounds, four-day uh, format was in the 1965 U.S. Open, um, oddly enough, at last year's PGA Championship venue, Bellarive mm-hmm. uh, Country Club. Uh, so we went from uh, having a Saturday 36-hole final to a Saturday-Sunday 36-hole final. And that was... Uh, you know, Robert Trent Jones's big forte into golf course design, mm-hmm. uh, at least on the national spotlight. And uh, we had uh, Gary Player being one of your fellow countrymen, uh, Kel Nagel, mm-hmm. uh, for, in a playoff for the U.S. Open. So sorry about that, everyone in Australia. I know we have a lot of listeners there. Uh, but the reasoning for this was not for all the things we thought. And when we were thinking about it, we were thinking of what, Ken Venturi? I believe we were talking off. Yeah, well, the year before, 64, Ken Venturi nearly died, didn't he? Uh, Playing 36 holes on the Saturday. He played in a stupor for the bulk of the day with heat stroke. Yeah, but the real reasoning came down to television. Uh Strikingly enough, in 1965, the first U.S. Open on color TVs was introduced. So we went to four rounds of play on color TVs. So it was the first also uh, colorized U.S. Open. There you go. Follow the dollars. was Was there a second part to that? Would it work today? Yes, would it work today, or would it be better than what we see today? I mean, what? I'd say no. Actually, it's not an I impossible mean, question. I'm thinking about it. I'll yeah. tell you why it wouldn't work. I, I mean, just 36 in one day, um, I think, you know, I, I guess this is awful, but if you're looking from a television perspective, mm. I would say no. It's too long. The size of the fields are larger. Um, I mean, think about it right now. You, U.S. Open tea times start at 8, and they finish near twilight. So it's yeah. a kind of amazing of pace of play. Yeah. Maybe it's a pace of play question, right? Yeah. Of like, if we had 36-hole final, Ooh. maybe pace of play would be that much better. Or uh, we'd be finishing with spotlights and it'd be delayed into Sunday no matter what. So More, more than that, though, Connor, I think... short, I say yeah. we've, we've got it right. right I think now. what you don't get is the... And this was, this was a mess for many years. You don't get the leaders teeing off last on Sunday. There's a whole structure that that brings which makes yeah. tournament golf on TV Absolutely. work. If the leader's out at 8 o'clock Saturday morning for his first round and shoots, you know, 78 and he's out of it or 62 and he's running away, the scenarios just don't work. You can't follow the narrative as comfortably um, if you don't have that. So I think we can answer that question. It's not impossible. What we've got now is better. Because you're not going to restack. You haven't got time. You're not going to restack the crowd. You haven't got time. It's not going to happen. As soon as the the last of the afternoon field's gone off for their first round, the first of the – Sec- the morning group's got to take off for their second round. There's no other way to do it. So there we go. Thank you for the question there, Will. That was a good one. Next one's from 
Vogue Golf, V O G E Y Golf, at Vogue Golf, V O G. What does he want to know? Good guy. Good Who, well, now this is an interesting one. Who has the more tragic career story at the US Open, in your opinion? Sneed or Philly? I assume he means they're Philly Mick, as in Phil Mickelson. Uh, if you think it was Slam and Sam, stories. Why do you think it was Slam and Sam? I'm guessing he thinks it was Slam and Sam. I think it was Slam and Sam. What do you reckon? Yeah. I mean, it's a tough one because it's it's a uh, quality versus quantity. Is there a quality you know, in, in, in a tragedy versus a quantity? Um, and, and, Rod, we talked a little bit about this before we started uh, airing. Uh, we both agree it's Sneed. And, and it's, the argument is six-second places for Phil Mickelson to four for Sam Sneed. So Mickelson is far and away running away with best second-place finisher at the U.S. Open. However, uh, as we just mentioned, I think this is a great lead. It ties lastly to the because last one, doesn't of, it? Hmm. Yeah, because of the format, it's certainly Sam Sneed. Mm-hmm. And as we just talked about, in a 36-hole final day on a Saturday, prior to 1965, um, your leader wouldn't be the last player to play. He wouldn't be in the final grouping. There was no final grouping. Your grouping was the grouping you got uh, Mm -hmm. first thing in the morning of your third round, and you just kept playing. Um, One of the great stories here, uh, before I answer this question in direct, was uh, the 1955 U.S. Open. And I, I... No, I... I was on another podcast, Sports Forgotten Heroes, and I brought this up, but it was the story of the 1955 U.S. Open where Jack Fleck uh, beat Ben Hogan. And essentially, as it went down, Ben Hogan finishes with what would have been a you know winning score in almost every U.S. Open prior. He comes off the green with play still happening in the field behind him. There's another 10 to 15 players out there on, you know playing, and only one of them has a shot, and that's uh, Jack Fleck who is on the 14th hole, I believe, and he's one stroke back. And Hogan knows, this is at the Olympic Club, he knows how hard the Olympic Club final stretches. And so Gene Sarazen on air says, Ben Hogan, just want to congratulate you for winning your fifth U.S. Open. And someone in the crowd and a photographer says, uh, Ben, can you hold up your hand for the five U.S. Opens? So he, he, there's a famous photograph of Ben holding up the number five and smiling. Because he, in his mind, thought he won the U.S. Open by two strokes. So NBC signs off the air, uh, concluding that Ben Hogan won the U.S. Open. So it's like Dewey beats Truman uh, kind of incident. So everyone in America thinks Ben Hogan wins the tournament. Ben Hogan goes back to the locker room. He takes a shower. He hears one, like, oh, you know, in the distance. Somebody comes in and says, you know what? Uh, Jack Fleck just bogeyed fourteen. So he's two down, right, with four holes to play. He's not winning. And Jack Flack is so pumped up by this that he bogeys the hole and he watch all he watches the whole crowd just basically leave him. Because, mm-hmm. you know, story's over. Back, yeah. Four holes to go and it's it's over. Yeah. And um Flack it energizes him and he birdies that next hole. Right? He birdies birdies the hole and he goes down. Now he needs to go one under over the last three holes. And again, news gets to Hogan. And Hogan's just kind of like scoffing it off. He really thinks he's, he's won it. He th- and he still thinks he's won it by two strokes. And news comes back again. Now uh, now Ben Hogan's changed. He's sitting in the locker talking to the boys, a couple news reporters. And word comes in that um, he's parred uh, 16 and 17, Jack Fleck. Not, Hogan's feeling pretty good because that, that final hole is just, it's rough, right? It's nails. And word comes in again that Jack Fleck found the rough 
uh, from the fairway. So now he's got no chance. There's his front pin. He's got a seven iron in the hand. There's a big bunker in front of the green. Uh, to get it anywhere near the green is just impossible, especially with a seven iron in your hand. And Jack Fleck hits, you know, one of the best shots probably in U.S. Open history. Uh, sorry about, you know, uh, the 53 Marion shot by uh, Hogan. And hits it to seven feet out of the rough, which is just miraculous. Kraus goes crazy. And Ben Hogan's only thought is, oh, God, he's either got to – no, I guess it was right before the shot. He's, he's either got to eagle it or par it because the one thing he doesn't want is a playoff. Of course. So he hears the big cheer. He knows he's in trouble. Um, you know, uh, Flex sinks the putt. And the only thing that Hogan says to people is, I guess I'll see you boys tomorrow. And then Jack <laughs> Fleck kind of runs away with the U.S. Open playoff. So well. just like that, we have – you, you know, you don't have the leader in the clubhouse watching scores and being able to say, okay, I need a par. So this is going to lead right into our Sam Snead story. So, yes, you have Phil Mickelson with six U.S. Open second-place finishes. You have four for Snead. Uh, on, you know, quantity, uh, it's definitely Phil Mickelson. Um, on quality of tragedy, it's going to be Sam Snead. And, and I will base it solely on one story. Uh, the 1939 U.S. Open. So, again, this is not players in the clubhouse, no scoreboards out there. Uh, the Augusta National um, uh, style of posting scores at uh, over par, under par, and red numbers does not exist. So when you're on the field, you're going by what you think and what people tell you. So all of a sudden, Sneed comes up to the 72nd hole, right? He is winning the tournament if you were looking at pure scoreboard. All he needs is a par to win the tournament. And through some advice, somebody in the crowd, gosh, if you found out this guy's name, I, I mean, I'm sure he would have punched him in the mouth. Yeah. But the guy says, you know what? You need to birdie the hole to beat Byron. So he's thinking he needs birdie. Pulls out driver, puts it into the rough. Now he, he's like, I've got to birdie the hole. I mean, I've, I've got to get it up there. So he pulls out a two-wood out of the rough and just – doesn't make clean contact. It's a, it's a Hail Mary shot. It goes into a fairway bunker. So now he's in a fairway bunker. He's playing for the green. He still has this miracle chance of maybe holding out and you know winning the U.S. Open. And he hits his next shot online, but it goes right into the bunker. And it wasn't just in the bunker. It was under the lip of the sod on the green side bunker. And, you know, again, you're playing it as it lies. He hacks it out, gets it on the green, and he, he thinks, you know, I've lost the tournament. So he's basically given up because that's the information he has. He three-jacks it, takes a triple bogey on the hole where a par would have won the 1939 two. U.S. Yeah. Open. He plays the hole completely different. If he's got the right information, yeah. yeah. Whereas, of course, if Mickelson knows. Right yeah, All six times, Mickelson knows what's required he at any given time during the tournament. He knows what's required to win the tournament. And so... Yeah. Aside from Shinnecock 04, which was just a beast. Am I right? Do I recall? Did he punt it into the bunker on the 17th green? And he wouldn't have been the first one that day. I don't, did he do it in the – I don't know if he did it in the final round. I can't recall. I know the 17th I, I, green I, I, was we'll pivotal. Check, let's check on that. Yeah, and the whole thing yeah, he took five. But, but certainly at Marion in 2013, at Wingfoot in 06. Oh, it's horrible. So, yes, I, I would give it to Sam because he's he's basically been misled. And who knows what would happen? He might have played all those shots regardless, but he yeah, may he not have. have. Yeah. But he may not have, whereas we know that Knowing, Nicholson... You know, as, G, 
as G.I. Joe used to say, knowing is half the battle. Yeah, exactly, G.I. Now, there's a guy. You want to take advice? You take your advice from G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe, that's right. Now, I don't think this one's going to be too hard to answer, uh, Connor. When did pros start complaining about tough setups? I've heard complaints since I was a kid. My dad heard them uh, or said it's always been that way. Has it always been that way? That's from Ryan Stimson, R. Stimson, BYU, at R. Stimson, BYU. Pros have always been sooks, haven't they? Curious. I'm kind of curious about Mr. Stimson. I didn't know that was written by Mr. Stimson. There's not a P in it. Uh, Do you know, Ryan? No, but it leads very well into my story, Uh um, oddly enough. So uh, the first U.S. Opens, you didn't have many complaints. Uh, You had a Victorian style of design, once again, with, you know, uh, bullocks, if you will, sticking up out of uh, the ground around bunkers. So it was just kind of a, a weird Victorian-style bunker design. Not a lot of complaints. The first golf course that, well, I don't want to say ever because, you know, someone will research that and I'll be wrong because there's a lot of open championships and, and U.S. Opens prior. But one of the first that was built as a monster is Oakmont. And the story I'm going to give, oddly enough, has a connection to our, our friend. Uh, was it Ryan? Ryan. Ryan Stimson? Yeah. No P in right, Stimson, good. though. So I don't know whether the it's going to have a... Yeah, You're going to like this story. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. so in the 1922, wasn't a U.S. Open, but it was the PGA Championship at Oakmont. So just for you little folks that like to know a little golf history bit tidbit. Was it a major then, um, There was Connor? I can't recall. I'm only no, kidding. I'm only yes, kidding. it is, Bob <laughs> or kidding. Phil. It is a major by then. But oddly enough, the um, Oakmont held a PGA Championship before it held a U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. And in 1922, the PGA Championship was held at Oakmont, the monster, if you will. And famously, Gene Sarazen putted off a green. The greens were so fast. So the pros were complaining. As a matter of fact, it happened at the U.S. Amateur, too, um, where people were, it was amateurs at the time, were complaining about how hard Oakmont was. Uh, but in 1922, the PGA Championship, Gene Sarazen puts off the green because of the green speeds. And in the crowd, a gentleman by the name of George Stimson, by the way, uh, notes this and decides to invent the stimp meter. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if Ryan has any relation, but if that's a strange bit of coincidence, there you go. But definitely at uh, Oakmont, and then ni- in 1925 at Oakmont, the U.S. Amateur is held in 1927. Uh, Oakmont holds the U.S. Open. In all of those events, there were complaints about the difficulty of the course. It go. was a bear. So yeah. not, on t- not only did they have treacherously deep bunkers uh, thick, rough, narrow fairways, uh, which is more like a modern uh, U.S. Open setup. But it also had fast greens, and um, it had furrowed bunkers. Oof. So Oof. you remember, I think, was it was it the Memorial? <laughs> yeah, Jack, Jack did it about 10 years ago. Jack was... did it. So I, I've played out of the 14th hole. Uh, so Oakmont, if you play it today on the left-hand side of the 14th green complex, they have an homage to the old phones bunkers, which were furrowed. And these furrowed bunkers are, oh, man, they're like two to three inch deep furrows. Uh, I have a great photo of Bobby Jones hitting a shot out of the furrowed bunker in the 1925 U.S. Amateur. And so on top of all those things, you have furrowed bunkers. There was, it, of course, was complained about. So it goes way back to 
the 1920s. And perfectly legitimate complaints, too, it must be said. Furrowed buckets are no fun you know what? for anybody. Let me make, I'm just going to make a pitch because I, I think there's been some discussion at Oakmont about potentially taking out the furrowed bunker on 14. Um, Don't. As I have the voice, I will use it. Keep it. Keep it, yeah. That's it fantastic. Is, it is an homage to your history. Yeah. I'm not saying you should have furrowed bunkers on no, but- any other hole or any other side of the green. Yeah. But quite frankly, if everyone knows it's on the left-hand side, there are three options to miss it. That's right. <laughs> short, you know, long, and right. You can miss long, you can miss short, you yeah, can miss right, exactly. just don't go left. Uh, that's the, the pe- beauty of it, too. As Clayton often says, as Mike Clayton often says, uh, ask the people at Sitwell Park what, what, whether they think now it was a good idea to blow up that McKenzie green that was controversial. Yeah. If they'd left it there, people would come from all over the world just to go and look at it. But, of course, they blew it up, turned it into a flat green. And, and as Mike himself says, he doesn't even know where Sitwell Park is. Why would he? There's no point going there. So... Keep the furrowed bunker on the left of the 14th at Oakmont. Uh, Big Todd Stud. Big Todd Stud. That's a name, isn't it? Uh, at Trapped Badger. Yeah, no, don't, don't, don't mess with Big Todd Stud. At Trapped Badger. Uh, what restorations or changes did Arnold Palmer make to the course before the 2010 Open? This is Pebble Beach. So, of course, Palmer was part of a conglomerate that owned the course. And I think you might be right. It might have been around that time that they bought it. I did a minute's research and couldn't find any reference to changes prior to the 2010 US Open at Pebble Beach. And my instinct is that it wouldn't have been necessarily Palmer doing them, though as soon as I verbalise it, I feel like I might be wrong. Here's, here's the truth of the answer to your question here, Trap Badger. We're taking that as homework, and on the next episode of the show, we'll see if we can come up with a better answer. My, my, my memory is not that there was any drastic changes made to the course, and I certainly don't recall Arnold Palmer being tired to any drastic changes made to the course. But, of course, if he was one of the owners, uh, if he wanted to make some changes, I'm sure he would have. So question taken yeah. on notice. The only one I think of is Jack Nicholas's par three. Yeah, that's right. The, the fifth, Arnold is it? Palmer does not – I'm not saying it didn't happen. No. But, um, but I, I don't recall any no. changes by in 2010 by Arnold Palmer. All right. Next up from Jim Green at J-I-M-Y-G-E-N. Jimmy Gein. So Jim Green at J-I-M-Y-G-E-N. Uh, Jim wants to know, how much of a factor was course set up in the early days? For example, pin placement, length, rough, changing par fours, fives, etc. Thanks. This is a tough one, isn't it? I, it is. Would, I, it would need to have been written about, I would imagine. I don't, yeah, there's I, not a I, lot. I, no, yeah, I haven't read as much as you, but I don't recall that. reading much about yeah. course setups in early tournaments. Yeah, I mean, if you go way back, um, you know, to the Open Championship, uh, they weren't changing flags on the 36. I don't know if they did in the very early days when they mm. played 36 in one day uh, for the U.S. Open. So, I, I honestly, I don't know how to answer it. To be honest uh. with you, I don't even know where I'd search because uh, uh. I read almost every periodical yeah. of that date all the way back. Um, as far as changing par fours to par fives, that's a really easy one for me. Um, the very happen. early U.S. Opens, U.S. Amherst, they didn't change par fours and par fives because, because they didn't exist. They didn't have par fours and par fives. <laughs> they didn't exist. Yeah. We didn't have par back then. We were playing for the lowest score wins. There was no uh, designator as to under par, over par. There was a bogey score for a hole, which was broad. Um, so, yeah, there wasn't a change of holes in that regard because there was no par. Yeah, I think we'll take that one on. A, that, that's not so much homework, but maybe keep an eye out for that. My instinct is that if it wasn't being written about, it probably wasn't happening. Does that make sense? You'd think if they were, if there was people out there specifically making changes to the course 
for tournament play that that, that would be written about either during, before, yeah. or after the tournament. I, I don't recall reading much of that, so I'm guessing there's probably not much of it went on. That's a... Yeah, I've got a couple of... Um, That's a classic 2 plus 2 equals 5, by yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah, I've got a couple of odd uh, publications on some of the early U.S. Opens, so I'll peruse through those um, and see if they... I, I don't, from reading them, I don't remember anything. I'm happy to look into it. Yep, so we'll take that. That's kind of unnoticed, but I think we can safely say there wasn't. Certainly not to the extent that we know today. And this one brings us neatly back to where we kind of started today's episode, Connor, and it's a really interesting question. This one's from James Burkhart uh, at Gate for Life. James Burkhart at Gate for Life. Do you think if he didn't have his breakdown, we'd talk about McDermott and not Wamet? This obviously refers to the 1913 US Open, won by yeah, Francis yeah. Wamet. McDermott was the double defending champion going into the event, and as your narrative explained, all sorts of things happened. And, of course, he finished, I think, f- maybe fifth. Ooh, not far out of it, uh, most definitely. But uh, yeah. did he finish fourth or fifth in 13, McDermott? In 13. Behind what, Matt? I'd say he finished eighth. Or, or even further back. Eighth. Okay. So, yeah. But I guess the point would have been, you know, the, 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 had, had there not been for those mental issues that your narrative so beautifully sort of uh, drew out and exposed for us, if not for that, might we have been talking about McDermott winning his third in a row? It's an interesting question, isn't it? What was he, 22? You know, it's, it is a really good question. Um, I'm going to take I'm going to I'm going to go at this two different ways here. So, would people know the name Johnny McDermott? I would say absolutely yes. Um, and and this isn't my uh, opinion so much as it is the opinion of Grantland Rice. Uh, Grantland Rice uh, eulogized his game in 1915 after he was committed to the um, Insane asylum, and I and I. By the way, I only use that term because uh, that's the term they used. Uh, it's not something that we, you know, call it today, obviously, but um, that's exactly the words that it was called in the day. So I tried to stay very history specific there uh, for anybody who's wondering. Um, but basically, Grantland Rice said that he had no weakness. Uh, if you listen to some of the quotes from Jack Burke Senior about the, his legendary accuracy, he had the medal to win U.S. Opens. He was extremely strong-willed and focused on being the greatest. And some of that will may have been part of, uh, you know, the, the, the break in his armor, if you will. Now, would we be talking to him over Francis we met? I'm going to go with a no. And, and maybe unfairly so, but I will, I'll, I will, I'll give you a historical uh, example of this. Uh, Willie Anderson. So uh, Willie Anderson won four uh, Open Championships. He was the last one to win three U.S. Opens uh, in a row. So he wins four U.S. Opens overall, um, three in a row, dies at, uh, I think, the age of 31. And how many people know his name? Mm, which is crazy, isn't it? That's a should That's be an incredibly compelling story. Yeah, Yeah, I, I actually had a, a question out there because um, someone posted, I think multiple people have posted that, um, now Brooks Kepka has the chance to win three U.S. Opens in a row, which has only been done once before by Willie Anderson. And one of the questions I pose to people is, can you name two others that nearly won, that came one stroke away from winning three consecutive U.S. Opens? The first one is Johnny McDermott. Uh, in his first playoff, he went to a playoff yeah. and lost to um, with the Smith brothers, Alex Smith. And, then one um, two. and Again, one stroke better, and he wins three in a row. And then they, uh, 
the next one was Bobby Jones, who again went to a playoff uh, and then you know won U.S. Opens right. I think two prior in a row and then lost in the playoff in I want to say nineteen twenty nine. But I'm going off the top of my head a little bit. When did, I wonder so, where Kurt, where did Curtis Strange finish in his either year before or year after his back to back wins? I wonder off the top of my head when he went back to back. Eighty eight, eighty nine, or eighty nine, ninety. I wonder how he I finished. Know he didn't finish one stroke. No, no. Obviously, you've obviously researched it, but yeah, that would have been the only one that I would have come up with. Would have been, would have been uh, possibly Curtis Strange. Yeah, it's it a fascinating question it, too. because I, I think it does highlight the fact that we we lost something dear. Yeah. Uh, when unfortunately Johnny McDermott, you know, uh, was institutionalized, and um, it's it, you know, like I said, I, I think I ended that story by saying um, that we should look at him as a hero. Mm-hmm. A, you know, a hero of the United States, the youngest U.S. Open champion yeah. winner and the first American-born U.S. Open champion winner. But as I said, not all heroes get happy endings. No, that's right. That's right. And it's kind of nice, and we've talked about it previously, and since you've done the narrative, it's kind of nice to think that McDermott might get a little bit more of the due that he's deserved because he still gets just essentially sidelined. Doesn't he? Oh, yeah, he's the guy, he, you know, he had a breakdown and was never heard from yeah. again. And that's all that people, that's, the, that's as much yeah. of, of history as is, is devoted to him. And that's unfair, really unfair. Well, and he's been painted so poorly yeah. in the public view. I mean, mm. really the only public view that people have that picture of is uh, the greatest game ever played yeah. where, you know, he acts like a petulant child and, you know, gets scorned by the media. And as I shared, that was one narrative of what happened. There mm. were three narratives, one of which was uh, McDermott's, which was backed up by A.W. Tillinghast, uh, which was that, no, he, he said nothing of the sort. He, he made a comment that was basically saying, you know, we have a great opportunity to take this championship home because we have the advantage because we know our co- mm. courses much like uh, our friends from the United Kingdom know the courses yeah. at home and would have an equal <clears throat> advantage. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's a it's a sad tale, and it's a sad tale that's been told over and over. And you know, I don't know. I hope that just uh, that simple story that I shared. Yeah. It all you know, plays its home with at least yep. one or two people. It all plays its part in helping step by step to you know sort of correct some of those misgivings from history and say so, you know it's, it starts with, so you've you've contributed there and and good on you for doing that. Um, we're right. We've gone a little bit over our allotted one hour. Not that we strictly keep to it, but I think we've had about a nice amount yeah. of time. It's been a good chat. It's going to be a good US Open next week. Obviously, it's going to be interesting. Always is at Pebble Beach, isn't it? I know the course is. Some people think it's way overrated. Some people think it's way underrated. And I know and respect people in both camps there. So not having yeah, played it, you yeah. don't know what to believe. But it's always a good U.S. Open. There's, it's a special place, very spiritual in American golf, Pebble Beach. So it's always a terrific U.S. Open. So I think I'm can, excited for it. It should be a good tournament. Yep, yeah, I agree. Connor, always great to catch up to you. And it has been again today, my friend. Thank you for all that. And don't forget, we better get that homework noted down so we make sure we get those answers out of the way next time on, uh, on the show. But uh, terrific to catch up with you today. And thanks for your time, mate. Yep, and then folks, if you like the narrative, I just started writing the second one, uh, uh, Golf from the Fringe, and we hope to have it out before the Open Championship. Yeah, and of course, if history's anything to go by, we should have we should have it out by next year's Open Championship. Uh. That's right. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> if it goes like the last one, it might take that. That's long. right. Just quickly, you mentioned you'd been on one or two other podcasts. What were they? Where can people hear them? We'll obviously we'll make some notes when they come out. But what should people be looking yeah, out for? So. Yeah, the next one is Sports Forgotten Heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will air, I think, this week. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll tweet about tweet it when it comes it, yeah. out and so everyone can click on it. I was asked to be on the Silver Club uh, podcast. I think we were looking for Monday, but I got pulled into uh, 
well, work meetings that I couldn't get out of, so I don't know if we'll reschedule that one. And then uh, I think there are two different radio shows that would like to have me on. Uh, and then finally, a uh, golf publication out of Texas called The Avid Golfer is, t- is talking about doing a, uh, a piece on the Society of Golf Historians. So, Fabulous. Good on you, mate. It's good yeah. to see. Not good to see you catching on. Good to see you busy. That, I've t- I know we've talked about this before. That whole work thing. I'm I'm just not seeing any space for it in my plans for what yeah. for you. And yeah. clearly, others are seeing the same. So, t- 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 get that taken care of. Would you just get rid of that whole work thing? Life right. would be a whole lot easier. If, if if only this paid more than yeah. negative money. <laughs> yeah, good, good luck with <laughs> I'd that. Be right there with you. Good luck yeah. with that. It's kind of like I think Garrett uh, Garrett said that on Twitter. Um, is it Garrett Jones? What's Garrett's? Garrett Morrison. What's formerly Garrett Morrison, Ford, now Morrison. Garrett Ford, that's right. So uh, he said something like, I don't know how you do it, how you do everything you do with a job. And I said, I don't sleep. It's something to that effect. It's, it's crazy. I am, I am haunted by history. I yeah. think that's a good way to put it. You're certainly driven. There's no question about that. We are the yeah. beneficiaries of it. So thank you for your time today. And that wraps up episode 12 of the Talk Golf History podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. We'll be back, we will be back again in two weeks' time. I think we're doing the open, or are we doing the narrative next time? We'll be back in two weeks' time with something for your listening <laughs> <That's> <laughs> pleasure right. here on the Talk and Golf History podcast. <laughs>